0: This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what is going on in the world that can impact your health. Welcome back. This week, we're going to be talking about killing things. That may sound like a strange thing for two Quakers, but don't worry. This is about a class of pesticides that are wreaking havoc on our pollinator population and our environment and have really no discernible benefit except for the chemical companies that manufacture and market those pesticides. The good news is people are doing something about it, and we have one of them as our guest on today's show. That story and Patty with the week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, what happened in the world of environmental health this week?
1: Really good article in the New York Times entitled, America is using up its groundwater like there's no tomorrow. Global warming is focused concern on land and sky as soaring temperatures intensify hurricanes, droughts, and wildfires. But another climate crisis is unfolding underfoot and out of view. Many of the aquifers that supply 90% of the nation's water systems and which have transformed vast stretches of America into some of the world's most bountiful farmland are being severely depleted. These declines are threatening irreversible harm to the American economy and society as a whole. The New York Times conducted a month-long examination of groundwater depletion, interviewing more than 100 experts traveling the country and creating a comprehensive database using millions of readings from monitoring sites. The investigation reveals how America's life-giving resource is being exhausted in much of the country, and in many cases, it won't come back.
0: People can't live without water, you know. I mean, Well, once...
1: I love the language that they use. It says the investigation reveals how America's life-giving resource, yeah, we can't live without water.
0: Can't live without water. And once it's gone, it's gone, and yeah. there's no replacement.
1: That's right. Huge industrial farms and sprawling cities are draining aquifers that could take centuries or millenniums to replenish themselves if they recover at all, in New York State, overpumping is threatening drinking water wells on Long Island, birthplace of the modern American suburb and home to working-class towns as well as the Hamptons and their beachfront mansions. Around Phoenix, Arizona, one of America's fastest-growing cities, the crisis is severe enough that the state has said that there's not enough water in parts of the county to build new houses that rely on aquifers.
0: And you know, we have these big lawns in suburbia, and you know, especially out in the Hamptons. Gigantic lawns. And
1: everybody's putting in irrigation systems. Absolutely. People buy a new house and within a couple of months, they've got an irrigation system company outside the house putting in a system.
0: The brand new houses across the street. They put in irrigation systems and then they put the sod down.
1: Okay. In other areas of the country, including parts of Utah, California, and Texas, so much water is being pumped up that it is causing roads to buckle, foundations to crack, and fissures to open in the earth. And around the country, rivers that relied on groundwater have become streams or trickles or just memories. Quote, there is no way to get that back, said Don Klein, the associate director for water resources at the United States Geological Survey there's almost no way to convey how important it is
0: and a lot of this is being driven by climate change you know all this you know when we have a drought we have to pump the water out of the ground to keep things irrigated
1: well i remember when we were in california that the ground was actually sinking and that actually means that the aquifer the space in those aquifers is actually now also shrinking right so that it won't be able to hold as much water as it used to, even if they do have good rainfall. Anyway, they have a database that reveals the scope of the crisis in many ways, and every year since 1940, for example, more wells have had falling water levels than rising levels. One of the biggest obstacles is that the depletion of this unseen yet essential natural resource is barely regulated which helps enable and reinforce practices that have drained aquifers such as growing water intensive crops like alfalfa or cotton in dry areas and over reliance on groundwater in fast growing urban areas Mm -hmm. this is something that we haven't heard too much talked about and it's critically critically important
0: don't miss water till the well runs dry
1: Okay, now I've got two articles on plastics. Okay. I just, you know, I, I hate to keep talking about plastic, but it's such a critical issue right now because we're just collecting so much data on it. Yeah, But okay. this is from ABC News, and the title is Plastic Particles Entering South Australian Waterways from Clothes and Tires. New research has shed more light about where microplastics are accumulating in South Australian waterways and where the plastic pollution is coming from. They have found many of the plastics are entering rivers, creeks, and the ocean through fibers from synthetic clothing and particles from tires.
0: Because we make our clothes out of plastic now.
1: That's correct. Anything that's made from polyester, acrylic, and so on and so on. Right. Scientists from Flinders University and the South Australian Research and Development Institute used ocean current modeling to predict where plastic particles are ending up in an effort to better understand the issue. They used oceanography to predict currents and place virtual particles into the modeling system to track their movement. It's not so much about cleaning up what's already out there. It's stopping what's entering the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. That's a much more achievable task. Yeah, exactly. Right. Some of the microplastics the researchers found were from tire particles washing into stormwater, while others were from general waste breaking down in the environment. Researchers said that washing machine filters were among the most simple solutions because the vast majority of plastic fibers came from synthetic clothing, constituting up to 72% of the plastic that they found. Can
0: you imagine?
1: Yep. They know how much microplastic is sort of entering the freshwater streams from land use, which means that they can really start targeting policy or efforts to stop that release into the freshwater systems. Microplastics production, though, is predicted to ramp up in the years ahead, and researchers expect to be seeing greater concentrations of plastics in the environment. Australian Environment Minister Susan Close welcomed the research. Ms. Close said that the state government was working on ways to reduce the amount of plastic in circulation. Quote, the problems are really big, but we keep finding solutions to them. Our kids need this earth to be much cleaner and much more sustainable than it is right now, and it's going
0: to take all of us. End quote. So a washing machine filter sounds like something that ought to be done pretty soon.
1: Yeah. There were news articles about this, you know, 10 years ago. And they mentioned that, you know, every washing machine and every dryer should have a filter on it that could capture these microscopic plastic particles. So that A, they didn't go into the wastewater, and B, they didn't go into the air.
0: So why isn't anybody doing this? I don't know. Manufacturers could promote their machine I don't know. But you see, if say, that, that
1: goes back, then it says, this This is all coming from synthetic clothing and synthetic clothing is made from plastic and plastic is made from fossil fuels yeah and so they don't really want to admit it you know that
0: you're you're wearing fossil fuels
1: or that the fossil fuel industry is responsible for all the microplastics in in the environment
0: Wow okay what (laughs) else you got
1: okay and this is a this is from the independent it's a UK paper And it is entitled, Clouds Now Contain Plastic, Risking Contamination of Everything We Eat and Drink. I'm sorry, two plastic articles in a row, but really important one.
0: The clouds contain plastic.
1: Clouds now contain microscopic pieces of plastic that in turn are causing plastic rainfall according to a new study. Scientists fear that these particles of less than five millimeters, known as microplastics, could be contaminating nearly everything we eat and drink.
0: Holy cow.
1: Microplastics are the result of the glut of plastic pollution that is choking our lands and oceans. Plastic waste breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces over time and is finding its way into the atmosphere, human bodies, and other species. Previous research has linked these particles to diseases and conditions, including cancer, infertility, and hormone disruption. The new research from Waseda University in Japan assessed for the first time how microplastics affect cloud formation and the potential impact on the climate crisis and human health. The researchers said they believed they were the first to detect airborne microplastics in cloud water. If the issue of plastic air pollution is not addressed proactively, climate change and ecological risks may become a reality causing irreversible and serious environmental damage in the future. In the study, researchers analyzed cloud water collected from the summit of Mount Fuji, the southeastern foothills of Mount Fuji and the summit of Mount Oyama in Japan. They used advanced imaging techniques to determine the presence of airborne microplastics in the cloud water and examine their physical and chemical properties. The researchers said the analysis suggested that airborne microplastics in the cloud water originated primarily from the ocean. Quote, This implies that microplastics may have become an essential component of clouds, contaminating nearly everything we eat and drink as a result of plastic rainfall.
0: You know, that's just a hard one to wrap your head around. Every raindrop now contains plastic particles that you're gonna eat.
1: It's pretty sobering. Yeah. The plastics issue is much bigger than people really understand. Yeah. I mean it's just so ubiquitous. I mean they go into a store and they want to buy a, a you know, a bag of oatmeal and it comes in a plastic bag or they want to buy a you know, a couple of yogurts for their kids' lunches, you know, during the week and they're all made from plastic. Everything is plastic. Everything. Everything that's that's fast food or convenient food is plastic. Even, you know, you buy a bag of frozen peas, they come in a plastic bag. That's the bag. You know, they're not putting them in paper. How can you put frozen peas in a paper bag? You can't. Yeah. We're living in a world where we are so dependent on plastic for packaging. It's, it's overwhelming to think about how to fix this problem.
0: We're dependent on it for packaging. We're depending on it for clothing, We're wearing plastic clothes.
1: I'm not. I've made an absolute pact with myself that we will only wear natural fibers. That's it.
0: Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Pesticides kill things. It's what they do. Whether it's weeds or fungus or insects, ever since World War II, chemical companies have been developing toxic solutions to kill things. First, it was the organochlorines, a class of chemicals that included DDT. When we eventually learned how toxic those chemicals were, not only to the target pests, but to humans, the industry switched to the production of organophosphate pesticides. But those, too, turned out to have negative effects far beyond the target pests. Pyrethroid and carbamate pesticides followed as the chemical industry continued to develop highly profitable markets for their products and stay one step ahead of the scientists and the regulators.
1: This whack-a-mole scenario of pesticide development followed by market penetration, then scientific research and eventual government regulation has been playing out for almost 100 years and it goes on today. But before we had giant chemical conglomerates developing toxic pesticides for profit, small farmers and home gardeners were using homemade mixtures of tobacco and water as a natural pesticide to kill insects. The nicotine in tobacco is extremely toxic to all living
0: things. Fast forward to today, and chemical companies have analyzed the chemical makeup of nicotine and developed their own new products to kill things called neonicotinoids.
2: Neonicotinoid, for long, or neonic for short, means new nicotine like substance. And neonics are neurotoxic insecticides, which means they're pesticides designed to kill insects by attacking their nerves. And they do so by attaching to the part of the nerve that responds actually to nicotine, except it doesn't let go of that nerve site and it overstimulates the nerve until that nerve fails. So if you've seen a, a an insect like a bee that's been poisoned with a neonic, oftentimes they'll start to shake uncontrollably before becoming paralyzed and dying.
0: That's Dan Rochelle, acting director of the Pollinator Initiative of the NRDC, or National Resources Defense Council. Dan is leading the effort to have New York State place some restrictions on the use of neonics. He says the pesticide is having a devastating impact on our pollinator population.
2: What's insidious about neonics is that oftentimes they don't kill the bee outright. They are sort of, at this point, ubiquitous in large parts of our environment. And they're so phenomenally toxic. They're among the most potent and maybe the most potent insecticides ever created that even, you know, parts per trillion of these insecticides can cause nerve damage that builds up over time. So what we saw about 15-20 years ago, beekeepers across New York and across the country suddenly started losing their colonies. Those losses went from about 10-15% a year to 30-40-50% virtually overnight. Everybody's sort of wondering, you know, what's going on? And Over the past couple of decades, the science has become clear that these pesticides are affecting our ecosystems in fundamentally really destructive ways. And the honeybees were our first indicator. They were sort of our canaries in the coal mine that something was wrong.
1: The decline in pollinator populations has a potentially catastrophic impact on our worldwide food supply. So figuring out what is causing it is really important, but that's not always as easy as it sounds.
2: It's tough to sort of tease out what's, you know, what's the most significant because a lot of times what these pesticides will do, they'll slowly poison the insects and that nerve damage builds up over time, right? This nerve damage is permanent and so you know the bees maybe are not able to find food or they're not able to navigate or they start behaving in strange ways and that builds up over time and maybe they succumb to something else like a disease or a parasite and there's been links between you know these poisons and susceptibility to those diseases is just like anybody else, somebody who's weak is is more likely to, to fall ill from something else. But what we can say about neonics, and that's really damning, is all of these other causes that we know harm bees, habitat loss, parasites, pathogens, climate change, those have all been worsening but happening at sort of a steady state. We have this massive spike in losses, right, a, a real clear signal. And the only thing that lines up with that is the rapid adoption of these pesticides. In particular, their use in coating corn and soybean seeds.
0: The negative environmental impact of these neonic pesticides is not limited to the pollinators, of course. The damage goes far beyond that, partly because of the way these pesticides are designed to work.
2: Neonics are not like your grandfather's insecticides where you sort of spray it on a plant it kills the bug and then it dissipates, right? The way that neonics work, they're designed to get into the plant, right? To, to get into the the leaves, the pollen, the nectar, the fruit, everything, and to make the plant itself toxic to insects, to make the plant itself the pesticide. So that means you know that you can apply them in all sorts of interesting ways. Of course, you can spray them and, and they are sprayed, but more commonly they're applied to soil or literally painted on crop seeds, And as that crop plant is growing, it's designed to soak up the pesticide through the roots and make the plant poisonous. The problem is, you know, they say that this is a a precise application, but the problem is only two to 5% make it into the target plant. The other 95 plus percent stay in the soil where they persist for years and years and years. And those same properties that let them get up into the plant, namely they dissolve really readily in water, means every time it rains, Every time there's irrigation, lawn watering, those neonics are moving through the soil. They're contaminating new soil. If there are plants in that soil, those plants soak up the pesticides, they become toxic. If there's a water supply nearby, surface water, groundwater, those water supplies become polluted. And because they're used in the same place year over year, and because they stay in the soil for multiple years, what we have is this massive buildup of toxicity in the environment that's constantly expanding every time it rains. And bees are are getting it from every direction, right? They're eating the pollen, the contaminated pollen, nectar, contaminated water. A lot of bees burrow in soil, which is also contaminated. But what we've learned is that what's happening to bees is not isolated to bees. Like anything else in the environment, you know, what's happening one place is probably happening a lot of places. And we see that these pesticides are fundamentally hollowing out our ecosystems from the bottom up with ripple effects to birds, fish. And shockingly, you know, we see these pesticides a lot in our water supplies very commonly and more commonly in people's bodies.
1: Yes, apparently these neonic pesticides are not only decimating our pollinator population and destroying our natural environment, but they're getting into our food supply and water supply and into our own bodies where they can cause all kinds of trouble, especially for pregnant women and the new life they are carrying.
2: There was a recent study showing 95% of pregnant women tested in New York and four other states had neonics in their body and at increasing levels, over the four year study from from 2017 to 2020. And look these are neurotoxic, right? They're they're designed to target the receptor sites that respond to nicotine and we have those nerves in our body in sensitive areas of our brain and central nervous system. They're not as well distributed as they are in insects, right? So they're more potent to insects than they are to us. But again, these These receptor sites that respond to these pesticides, they're in very sensitive places of our nervous system. So it's especially a concern with developmental issues with children. And we do see associations between neonic exposure and autism-like symptoms, birth defects of the heart and brain, cognitive effects, etc.
0: Not all uses of pesticides are bad, of course. There are some situations where the use of pesticides is warranted but they need to be used surgically in limited quantities and in very controlled circumstances. Widespread indiscriminate use of pesticides has always been and continues to be a serious threat to the health of our planet and our own survival.
2: You know, they do kill bugs, right? And there there are certain limited applications like treatment for invasive species, for example, in woody plants, right? So they're very good at permeating plants, right? So if you have emerald ash borer, Hemlock, woolly, adelgid, these boring insects, you know, something like a systemic insecticide, you know, you, you might want to use that. And that's that's what some of the research has shown. But what the research has also shown, and this is a huge body of research, a lot of this is is coming out of Cornell University, but it's it's all over the country, all over the world, is that. The largest uses of these pesticides, and again, this is the treatments on the corn and soybean seeds, and to give you a sense of scale here, you know, just one neonic-treated corn seed has enough active ingredient to kill about a quarter million bees. It also has enough active ingredient to kill a small songbird. 30,000 seeds per acre on average for corn, there are somewhere between 90 to 100 million acres of corn nationwide. Almost all of those are pre-treated with a neonic pesticide. And again, they're used in the same place year after year after year, so you have buildup. That's about 5% of the land area of the lower 48 states. I mean, we're talking about a massive, massive pesticide use. And these are acres that didn't used to get an insecticide treatment, most of them all season before. And now we have 100% um, being treated before planting, right? Before you even know you have a problem. And what makes the use of these pesticides for this use, almost criminal, is that there's no benefit. There's no economic benefit to the farmers. You know, very rarely, what the sciences show is very rarely can you tease out any sort of yield benefit from using these seeds in a climate in the Midwest or or the Northeast, but the pesticides cost money, right? So even that benefit is so marginal when you measure it against the cost of having the pesticide on the seed, economically, it's a wash so we have a massive poisoning of our environment that's building up year over year that's you know hollowing out our ecosystems getting into people's bodies and the only people that are profiting are the chemical companies and it's worth noting too you know farmers are hurt by this too because we see production of apples production of cherries are pollinator limited nationwide that means that apples apple farmers are not growing as many apples as they could Cherry farmers, blueberry farmers are not growing as much produce as they could because there are not enough bees, in particular wild bees, right? Everybody thinks about honeybees, but there are 4,000 species of native bees. A lot of them are critical pollinators, certainly to ecosystems, but also to agriculture. Honeybees are not native to the US and in a lot of circumstances, they're not as good at, at pollinating our crops. So, so there are farmers already being hurt by this, not to mention what it's doing to soil health and the damage it's doing there. To beneficial insects, right? The good bugs that eat the bad bugs. These pesticides are much better at killing those beneficial insects than they are at the pest insects. What makes a pest insect a, a pest is that they reproduce very quickly and, and they're good at spreading themselves. So on multiple levels, and, and the insects, I should note too, that break down plant matter and return nutrients to the soil and help plants grow and allow carbon storage. So on multiple levels, these pesticides are just fundamentally disruptive to our environment.
0: The giant multinational corporations that produce and market neonic pesticides have a mandate to maximize profit, not protect the environment or preserve our population of pollinators. That's the job of government, and that's where Dan Rochelle and others supporting new legislation in New York State hope to make a difference.
2: The New York legislation is a, a targeted prohibition on sort of the high-cost, low-benefit uses of Neonix, aka the dumb uses, right? It grows out of a report from Cornell University that looked at over 1,100 peer-reviewed papers, basically everything that had been written on Neonix to date, and importantly did a cost-benefit analysis, right? Because the important question with pesticides is, not, or not are they bad, right? All pesticides are poisonous at some level. But if you get rid of them, what's what's going to be the replacement, and, and, and what are the costs and benefits of that? And there are two big findings that came out of the report. The first is that the treatments on these corn, soybean, and wheat seeds are providing no overall economic benefits to farmers. And that, by far, is the largest use and most widespread use in the country, and that's true in New York as well. The second finding of the report is that these lawn and garden uses, likewise, most of the time aren't needed, right? They're used prophylactically, sort of like taking an antibiotic now, just in case you might get sick next year. Um, So in most cases, not needed, but even where you might want an insecticide, there were safer alternatives, even more effective alternatives available. So the bill targets just those two categories of uses. Together, those equal about 80 to 90% of the neonics going to New York's environment every year. So it's a very targeted bill. It's a very common sense bill it doesn't go as far as some other jurisdictions, right? Europe banned the three major neonics over there in 2018 completely. Actually, some of those bans started in 2013. Corn and soybean seed started then. Quebec has largely phased out corn and soybean seed treatments. They they haven't used them over there for the last four or five years. So in a way, New York is coming after those laws, but it would be a national leader if it passed this bill and would be so important nationwide as sort of first actor and also a signal to markets, too, and opening up those markets to alternatives. And again, in this case, the best alternative and the most cost-efficient alternative is nothing, which is the best part.
1: Americans tend to take a lot of things for granted in our world. And one of those things is the miracle of food production. A seed goes into the ground and eventually our local supermarket or farmer's market has food for us to eat. But a lot of things have to happen just right to make that reality. And the system that makes food possible is more fragile than we may think.
2: About one out of every three bites of food that we take comes to us because of pollination provided by a bee or another pollinator. And a lot of times these are the most nutritious and delicious foods so we would still have food in a world without pollinators we would just lose a lot of the best choices and all of the food would become a lot more expensive and and this is particularly poignant in a time where we're already facing inflation and, and seeing how that affects families and again these effects are probably already happening right we're not growing as much of these fruits and vegetables. In fact, there was a recent Harvard study that found global production of food and vegetables is down about three to 5%. And they calculated that that led to about four to 500,000 preventable deaths just because of loss of, of this produce. So they're, they're essential to our food system. They're probably even more essential to ecosystems. So about 80% of the plants on the face of the earth require bees and other pollinators to reproduce. So if we continue to lose pollinators, We worry not only about food shortages, which is bad, but we also worry about ecosystem collapse because they're keystone species.
0: Dan Rochelle, acting director of the Pollinator Initiative of the NRDC, or National Resources Defense Council. You can learn more about the Birds and Bees Protection Act by searching birds and bees, NRDC, and it will come right up. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest, Dan Rochelle, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.